Looking for a sparkling clean bathroom without so much hassle? Wet and Forget Weekly Shower Cleaner is here to revolutionize your cleaning future. Just spray today, rinse tomorrow, and voila! Enjoy a sparkling clean shower and tub without any scrubbing. It's the secret to a hassle-free clean bathroom that many are discovering. With over 33,000 five-star reviews, Wet and Forget Weekly Shower Cleaner has proven its effectiveness on shower glass, fixtures, tiles, and more, ensuring everything shines with minimal effort. This product has gained a loyal following thanks to its once-a-week application that makes it a standout in the cleaning aisle. Join the ranks of satisfied users who enjoy more me time and less clean time with Wet and Forget Weekly Shower Cleaner, available at Amazon, Lowe's, Menards, Home Depot, and Ace Hardware. It's the perfect choice for anyone wanting to simplify their cleaning routine. Don't miss out on a chance to transform your bathroom cleaning with just one application a week. Pick up a bottle of Wet and Forget Weekly Shower Cleaner today and join the thousands who've already made the switch to Effortless Clean. I love fast cars, but there aren't a ton of high-performance TVs. They're certainly out here, there, but when I, when I get a chance to get behind the wheel of one, it's, I love it. And I was blown away by the Kia EV6 GT. When you get behind the wheel of the Kia, it, it is literally like being in a state-of-the-art rocket ship, but also comfortable. The thing goes from zero to 60 in 3.4 seconds. It is the premium driving experience. And of course, it's an EV. So the climate thanks you. SiriusXM provides access to over 165 channels in the vehicle. Music, sports, news, comedy, yacht rock. Let's go. Little, little steely Dan going in your Kia. Come on now. So check it out today. It is the all-electric Kia EV6 GT. I had a blast checking it out. Believe me, you should do it yourself via kia.com slash EV6. To learn more, that is kia.com slash EV6. Kia, movement that inspires. Because I collect them. And my, my, because, because my, my father used to say to me, you never know how far a frog can go until you kick it. Hey, everybody, it's me, and this is Literally. Well, you know, um, Literally is designed to be a fresh, happy, easy, breezy, have a good time, everybody come together, free zone. And I usually stay out of politics for just that reason. Um, There's enough of that elsewhere if you want it. Um, But the fact of the matter is I have a history in all of that, and I'm still interested in it, and I know a lot of great people in it. And one of the greatest is my guest today, George Stephanopoulos. George has obviously gone from political savant of the Clinton campaign to have 17 different careers um, as a journalist and, you know, host face of ABC News and Good Morning America and books and whatever. He's a fascinating guy. Um, And um, I am super psyched to have him on. Um, George Stephanopoulos. Here we go. (music) 
are you taking over CNN? <laughs> Absolutely not. Boy, who takes a journalist I, uh, into their training session? Who I, does that? Arnold? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, right. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, it's so it's such a it's, it's such a strange thing, you know, because Chris Lick, I I don't know him that well. I've met him a couple of times. He's a hell of a talented television producer, I and mean, a and a really, in spite of what we're discussing, really smart guy, really smart. And you know what he did with Morning Joe, what he did with Colbert was unbelievable. And then, you know, the degree of difficulty for that job that it was always going to be high that the CNN yeah job. Boy, just it was a tough run. Do you think it though? It's like I wonder if it's one of those things. I'm going to sound like some MAGA nutcase, and and I, clearly I'm obviously not, but I'm I'm just going to do like a devil's advocate thing. Is it the notion of transforming what is clear, what had clearly become a left leaning, or or even even if it isn't, the perception is. I don't think it was left leaning. I mean. You know, I, I can't defend what every journalist on CNN did over the last five years. And I think some did make it a little more personal than it should have gotten. But I kind of resist this idea that calling out lies is a left-wing enterprise. I don't think that's what that was. Oh, me neither. I mean, that was, that was standing up for democracy and truth. Now, it did get perceived in that way. And that's why it was such a tricky thing to try to recalibrate for CNN. Yeah. And by the way, to be clear, I agree with you on that. I think I, my sense of it was, it was more, more an editorial thing about what store, what stories demand more time versus other stories yes, and, and, and perhaps, yeah. and perhaps lack of context and follow-up questions and things like, like that. But for sure, it's like, you can't allow people to go up there and poor was it Caitlin Collins. I think she tried, she did a, did tried to do a good as you could. We had, we had a lot of talk about that. I, I think, is Trump a candidate? Because he's a candidate, do you have to cover him? Absolutely. Do you have to do it live? Absolutely. No, uh, and listen, I mean, man, I, you remember what it was like the first time you ran. They would they would have a, 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 a live square of an empty podium for an hour. Right. For an hour before he showed up. Yep. Yep. Crazy. It, it, listen. <laughs> The media can complain all they want, but that's a that's a, a monster of their own making. In that sense, yes, one hundred percent. I think we've learned some of the lessons as as this come, thing comes around uh, again. I mean, you know, it was a, the two thousand fifteen two thousand sixteen was a, a real learning learning experience for the whole country, but it was for all of us because you know when it all started out. I mean, I probably interviewed, I had interviewed Trump going back to like 1999. And like during the course of the 15, 16 campaign, I probably interviewed him 42, 43 times. Wow. Starting out, you believe, you know, what are journalists supposed to do? They're supposed to point out falsehoods. They're supposed to point out hypocrisy, flip-flops, changes in positions, hold people to account for that. You know, we did all that. I look back at all my interviews and had they been done with any other uh, candidate, any other normal candidate in any other normal time, I, I can point to a half a dozen things that would have knocked a normal candidate out of the race. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. He, he broke the model in that sense. And we had to learn a different way of doing our jobs because of that. Do you think that that is, um, that, I mean, listen, Ed Muskie had the audacity to have a tear in his eye. Right. Was it a tear or was it a snowflake? Was it a snowflake? Ex- That's one of the great... <laughs> One of the great deep dives. 
But that was, and that was the end. He, had, he had, might have yeah, had a tear in his it. eye. That was that the was end. It. Right. Trump said, grab him by the you-know-what. And, and I thought, oh, well, that's it. It's done. Nope. Gary Hart, you know, said, follow me. And they had a picture of him walking onto a boat. Bam. Bam. That is the end. Even John Kerry, the Swift Boat stuff, he was a war hero. <laughs> the Swift Boat stuff didn't knock him out of the race, but it certainly hurt him. L yep. Look what happened, you know, with Donald Trump starting out, he calls John McCain, absolute prisoner of war, war hero, a loser. Yeah. I mean, one of the interviews I had was the day after the Democratic Convention in, uh, in, in, in 2016. And, and I'll never forget it. It was, I flew to Colorado Springs to interview him. I had this interview and uh, in the middle, it was one of the first interviews where I uh, dove in on Russia, asked him about three or four different times his relationship with Putin. That was, you know, that was fine. And, but in the midst of this interview, I don't know if you remember, but he attacked this gold star mom. Yes, I remember. The Democratic Convention, the mother of this Muslim American soldier who died in Iraq. And, you know, my team and I, as, he's, as we were watching her attack this woman, we think, my God, when this comes out tomorrow, he's going to be out of the race. I mean, you just can't do that. And it turns out that Trump was enraged at me. Like he, he, the interview stopped. He pulled my producer aside, brought him out into the hall, yelled at him for five minutes, brought me into the hall, yelled at me for five minutes. He was yelling at us about the Putin questions. And I didn't care. I was going to ask the questions and I, I knew I was right to ask the questions and pushed it all out. But I'm thinking, boy, you're missing what really happened here. The lead was, you know, how much uh, it turned out in retrospect, the lead actually was the Russia questions. But in the day, in the immediate aftermath, it seemed like, well, you're, you're upset about that, but what you said about this mother, the mother is going to knock you out of the race tomorrow. Nobody cared. Do you think that that continues for any other candidate or is that just effect of him? In other words, can I, any of these I, guys I, you know, screw up or do those things and get away with it? You've seen some instances where people have toughed it out uh, in the face of issues like this in a way that they might not have in the past. I'm thinking of the, the governor of Virginia a couple of years ago and I'm blanking on his name right now but he got caught in the black face from and he decided just to tough it out yeah when it looked right. like he didn't have to get out of the race and that ended up working for him but i think for the most part this is kind of unique to him and we're about to see another big test of it i think yeah it's it's what um today it's funny i i some of my you know you and i have lots of friends in these in these circles and i've been hearing a lot about i'm like really about the mayor of miami and i wake up today to read the headlines and the mayor of Miami looks like he's going to, whose name I, I'm not familiar with yet, but looks, Warren, yeah. looks like he's going to jump in. People, people are liking him. And it's, it's just so funny that nobody knows anything. It's like, it's so, th this election is so far away. It's, it's funny you said, I met with our, um, you know, each, each election cycle, we have these, uh, embed reporters who, who, uh, you know, go live basically with the candidates and the campaigns. Yeah. Um, and I was meeting with them yesterday and they were asking me all these questions about the campaign. And I said, this is, and who was the one who originally said it about Hollywood? No one knows anything. Yeah. William I mean, Goldman. William, William Goldman. Right. Yep. And that is, that, that goes 10 times over yep. for this election. If you, if you came up to me and said to me a year from now, neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump is going to be in the race. I'd say, okay, that that's plausible. Yep. If you said they're yeah. both going to be in the race, I think it's less likely, but I think it's, it's, it's plausible. Uh, I personally believe that this indictment uh, on the classified documents case, it isn't that it is going to hurt 
Trump more than other people tend to think right now. A lot of people just have this view that it's just going to, you know, nothing has moved his voters before. You know, we'll see what this what this case looks like, but I think that could have the potential of at least shaking up how other elected Republicans look at him, shaking up some of that support, and also will give more permission to other candidates like Chris Christie to take Trump on directly. We'll see. Oh, if that's that going to be fun. I cannot wait for the Chris Christie Trump brawl. <laughs> I, I truly, I mean, that's going to be great television. Don't you think? In order to be in a Republican debate, you have to pledge to support the nominee. Now, Chris Christie has already said he was never going to support Donald Trump if Donald Trump is the nominee. And the way that Christie handled it this morning was say, we're going to do what Donald Trump did last time. I'm going to take the pledge, but not really mean it, basically. That's what he was, <laughs> was saying. He's, you know, to go to your point from a minute ago, will it work for someone else if yeah. they do exactly what, what, what Trump did the last time? Why does RFK Jr.'s candidacy already feel like a third-party candidacy to me? Well, because he's... He, he doesn't have any mainstream positions. I mean, he's an, he's a he's a, in the Trump mold, a different kind of candidate. Conspiracy theories over vaccinations uh, and and things like that. I don't know that he's you know. Will he stay in all the way? Will he stay in after after the primaries? Hard to know. Uh, possibly because he doesn't seem to be beholden to anyone, but. Uh, you know that it's it, it's tricky for all of us. I I think that again, when you're dealing with candidates like that, espousing views like that, we have to be very careful about what we do this time around in covering them. On the one hand, we can't be censors. On the other hand, we can't amplify falsehoods, and then we have to be very careful about that. What if he What if he dings Biden out of the gate? I mean, by getting what? By getting thirty percent exactly. of the vote in New Hampshire. That's yes. exactly right. That would be a, That would be. I, by the way, I take I take that bet. I go to Vegas now. I take that bet. I think that's a good bet. What? You're over under. You get about thirty. Wow. Yeah. I don't think it would be that high. But even I would say that it's conceivable that even getting between ten and twenty percent would be considered a dig. That's really what I'm saying. Is like whether it's whether it's look. It, let's say anything above ten, people are like, "Whoa, look at this." Yeah. Well, it's it's it's, it's a it's a very you know this environment is so hard to read. You know in when I was growing up in politics, when I was starting in presidential campaigns, if you had a president with an approval rating or a candidate with an approval rating at 40, 41%, that's just considered, that's for, especially for an incumbent look, looking for reelection, that's considered the, the line where it's just impossible to win again. Wow. But in this environment where everybody is so polarized, you've got so much locked in opposition as, as it is against a Donald Trump who has that much, you know, probably has 65% of the public says they're never going to vote for him. Maybe. Maybe it's not the kiss of death. It's unbelievable. I, I always think about one of the greatest pieces of, I, I don't, I don't, when I say entertainment, I don't want it to sound like that's in any way a slight or insulting or a dig because it's not, but the war room is one of my favorite things that's ever uh, been made. <laughs> How do you feel about the war room? It's like another lifetime, right? I know. Well, you're a different person. It's literally, you've had 17 lifetimes since then. Well, so have you actually. That, no, we both. <laughs> We we both have, but I love that movie so the documentary. See, I think it's a movie. Well, Penny Bay, he's a, he he was a genius. He was an absolute genius. And you know, this is a guy um who did also did Don't Look Back, the great Bob Dylan. Oh, I didn't realize he did about oh. RFK called Crisis. He he basically did the war room with I think three or four days what? of filming with a tiny little camera. 
on his shoulder. I mean, they had bought a lot of footage from earlier on, right? But it was just the, what he was able to do with limited amount of footage and just the the intimate feel that he got of that campaign was unbelievable. We thought that we said yes to it. He's got to be this little thing that was going to be, you know, on PBS some Friday night and <laughs> right, right. In 19, in 19, whatever, 1994. And it turned into such a, a big deal because it was such a brilliant movie. It's not about James and I, it's, it's about, you know, Pennybacker as a filmmaker. And, and, a, and a moment in time. But I, I will say that the two scenes that I will never forget are it's election night. Your guys are clearly going to win. And it's, I, I don't know if it's Mandy Grunwald or, but it's some very young uh, woman who is working for you and the way she's looking at you. Oh, Heather Beckham. Heather Beckham. That is, I, I wish a woman would look at me that way one day. <laughs> that was the one where she looks up and says, how does it feel? Yes. Right? How does it feel? <laughs> the how does it feel moment is like Aaron, that, that's the, I'm, I'm sure it was the kind of thing that made Aaron Sorkin go, this is, this is a movie. This is a movie right here. Well, that was, I mean, you know, th- I'm so lucky that, you know, he was there to capture a peak moment in my professional life. I mean, there's nothing like after 12 years for Democrats being part of a campaign that defeated an incumbent president. It was, you know, was that brings me to the other moment, which is might be I, I, there's Henry Fonda's I'll be there speech in Grapes of Wrath. And there's James Carville's speech. Oh, my God. That election night speech. Oh, my gosh. It, Love I, and labor. Love and labor. I'm telling you right now, if you guys listening have not seen War Room, please see it. And for all of these, but Carvel's, I'm going to be 50 years old. I've never worked for a living candidate, whatever, whatever that iteration of it is. And it was him. And, you know, you talk about the moment in time. James Carvel was made to run a presidential campaign at that moment in time what were what was his special sauce for that moment in time and why isn't it the special sauce for today well it's a completely different time but i mean i think that he understood where the country was at that moment he sort of had a and he had a a perfect pitch for what people could accept i mean obviously if you look at the things he did uh first of all this idea of focusing on the economy the the famous economy stupid stupid uh but you know, the people for that was actually part of a three-part haiku. Really, it was a haiku. It's the the economy, stupid. Don't forget healthcare, and change versus more of the same. Everything we said every single day had to fit into one of those, if not all three of those frames. And that was his genius, distilling the entire campaign. When you had a candidate who was disciplined enough and smart enough to do it. Well, and and you know, you, it wouldn't have worked if you didn't have a candidate like. Clinton, who had already, in his own way, a different kind of political genius, mapped out what it would take to win, and also just had, at the time, just the unbelievable grit to be able to take so much incoming and just keep plowing, uh, plowing he, ahead. He's. I was. I once found myself. Might have been the first time I was ever in the Oval Office, and it was the height of the West Wing. Bloody sentence. The first time I was ever in the Oval Office. Yeah, you should you should talk. You should talk, Mister All Area Access. He uh, well because you know the reason I say it because every time I've been in the Oval Office under different administrations, the vibe in the Oval itself is completely different. Oh no, no question about it. I mean, it's unfucking. That's the personality of the person. I'll never forget 
Clintons had a big Bertha driver leaned up against the wall. Inside the Oakland, not in his little... No, uh, inside. I'll never forget as long as I... Listen, you never forget the first time you walk into the Oval Office. Where else can you go surfing and skiing in the same day? Or check out a world-class art museum and camp out under a brilliant night sky same day. Or hike through the redwoods and get a luxury spa treatment. There's only one answer. California. No matter where you go across this state, you will find a way to play. Look, I love California. Um, And I have not yet surfed and skied in the same day, although I do do both. So that is on my bucket list. It's the most beautiful place in the world. Discover why California is the ultimate playground. Head to visitcalifornia.com to start planning your trip today. So I came home to a little gift in my bathroom the other day from our friends at Harry's. To get what you want, you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. You know who challenged the status quo? Harry's. They saw customers getting ripped off by questionable products in the shaving industry and decided they had something better to offer. So instead of charging the same old ridiculous prices, Harry's found a way to make their beautifully designed razors, and they are beautiful, for a fraction of the price of the other big brands. Exceptional products, honest prices. That's Harry's. They have the highest customer satisfaction in shaving history and a no-risk trial. Don't like your shave? No worries. It's on them. Convenient subscription options that you can cancel at any time. And Harry's also has other self-care products that meet the same quality standards as their razors. Richly lathering, skin-softening body wash and scents like Redwood, Wildland, and Stone. And an extra high-quality, amazing-smelling deodorant for just five bucks. I love their stuff. I'm so impressed by Harry's products. All of it. It's all good. Don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash Rob. That's harrys.com slash Rob for a $3 trial set. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you've been listening to Literally long enough, you'll know that I am a big believer in getting the help you need. Therapy has been a big, big, big part of my life and something I think we should be all doing as needed just like checking the oil on your car. I've spoken about this, and we all carry around different stressors, big and small. We keep them bottled in, and it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to get the things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Rob Lowe today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Rob Lowe. Big Bertha Driver leaned up against the wall, might even be in the official picture they took of, of me and the president. And he had a, what, what was so, this is so dating of the whole thing. I think he had eBay 
up on a laptop. Like it's clear somebody had just given him a meeting about this. Oh wow! So you did it. That was that must have been in the second term. It it, when he came out because when I was, was I left after the first term. You were gone. Yes, you. We didn't have mobile. We didn't have portable computers. I had a computer behind my desk. Honestly, I never used it. And by the way, thank God. If you had email at this time, you know, I mean, oh. we had we faced enough investigations as it was. <laughs> Most of them made up, but if you had email on top of everything else, oh God! Well, can you imagine if he could if he could text you all at all hours of the night? <laughs> well, the, I mean, this is how I gosh, I hate to say it, this is how old I am. So I'm in the pre. We had the big, massive cell phones. It, you know, kind of went up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really use them. That much, but our big accessory at the time in the first term, the black was those little, little beepers you put on your belt. Well, and if then, you if you watch The West Wing in season one, we all have pagers. Yeah, and, in fact, my my storyline is I give my pager to a prostitute unknowingly in episode one of The West Wing. Yeah, that that probably that caused so many people to come up to me and say, "Sir, did you ever go out with a prostitute?" What's your <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I know people are absolutely my candidate. I, I mean, I think I, my job was more Josh Lyman. Yeah. Than Sam's. Yes. People. I think it's our hair. People think we have good right. hair. Brad Whitford, not so much good hair. And so they, they go, oh, you must be George's doppelganger. But no, you were, you were definitely Josh Lyman. And I, and I, who would have been the, the big speech writer? Gerson was for Bush. Grisham was for Bush. Um, Fa- and Favreau was obviously for Obama. I'm trying to think. Yeah, of- the, 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 Clinton, Clinton had a lot of different speechwriters. Michael Waldner was one. David Cousinet was another. Um, although your 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 job was kind of sweet, generous. You're, it was it was more than a speechwriter. Yes. Really. Yeah. It it, it it was. It was a little bit of. Way, I was thinking about this today because it just it popped into my head when I was thinking of, of, of coming on this. I don't know if this was you or Brad, but who, and this might have been in season two or three, who had the scene where they ended up, had to get deposed in a, uh, in a legal case and you know, kind of fought back because that was directly taken from my life. I was, you know, this crazy lawsuit by Larry Clayman, Judicial Watch, where he tried to argue that James Carville, uh, Hillary Clinton, and I were in a conspiracy to defame uh, Jennifer Flowers. I hadn't even spoken to Hillary Clinton in like three years at the time because it was after all the other stuff had come out with, with, with Monica. But I decided to go into that deposition, that lawsuit, and just not take any shit and fight back on every single question. And you guys ended up taking it almost verbatim. That <laughs> in, was in West Wing. It was it was Josh and it was Sam and and Josh. Josh oh. is Josh is being deposed. There he's trying to keep his cool. He finally loses it. And I and I jump in as the referee because I'm the I'm the only <laughs> lawyer. I'm the only lawyer in the room. And well, that's I, and right. I and I send Josh out of the room and I've been nothing but cool so far. And I go to the guy and say, if you come after Leo McGarry, I'm going to break you like a pinata. And it was one of the great, it was one of the, one of my favorite moments in, in, in of my characters ever. Cause he was always such like a nice puppy and he just went off. <laughs> I'm, I love that you remember that, you know, you know, um, president Clinton pitched us an episode idea. Did I ever tell you oh, this story? On. Well, actually, oh. that's not that surprising, is it? No, it, no, it really isn't. 
but he, so it's like, it's a first time in the, in the oval it's and and Aaron Sorkin is with me. It's Aaron and I, just the two of us. And I think Didi, no, Didi is already on our show now too. Yeah. yeah she's long gone. Was it, was it Joe Lockhart? Was it Mike McCurry? It, oh, it was no, no, no. The chief of staff was uh Podesta. Oh, okay. So yeah, second term, right. So, um, and we're, and, and Clint's like, you know what story you guys should be telling? And we're like, what, Mr. That's President? That's pretty good. Is that, is that so bad, right? Yeah. And he goes, um, he goes, you should tell a story about all these young kids that come down here, serve their country, devote their lives to it, make nothing, do all the terrible hours, and then get to know some reporter, and that reporter just shit boxes them. <laughs> and, and I go, I mean, I'm somewhere else with that. I thought he was going with the legal fees they all got. No, he, I, the, I'd never heard the phrase shit boxed. I'll never yeah, forget he, it as long as I live. And I, and I, t- I turned Aaron Sorkin and Aaron Sorkin who has a social anxiety disorder to begin with. Right. That, that the fact of being in the Oval Office, meeting the sitting president of the United States, talking about his show and God forbid being pitched a story by anybody. Is enough to say. What is a shit box? What is what does it mean to be shit box? I don't. I I, I don't know. To this day, I, I mean, don't I know. Hit it, but I don't know exactly what it means. Same with me. <laughs> and but but I'm telling you, I, on my children, he said it. I'll never forget it. And uh, Aaron literally goes, "Ah, uh, well, thank you, Mr. President. I'm sure you've got a lot of busy things to do." And split. He split, <laughs> and I'm left in the Oval Office, going ah ah ah, and then. A uniformed, you know, the, the uniformed Marine guards, right? Whatever that comes yeah. into me and yeah. says, um, Mr. Lowe, I'm a guest. He goes, the national security advisor would like to see you in his office. And I'm like, come on. I go, oh, oh, oh okay. I, Was it I, Sandy? Oh, yeah. So I walk in and it's, in, and I'm thinking, is this about my taxes? I don't know what's going on. And Sandy Berger goes like, sit down. And, and like, we're super brusque. And I sit down and he goes, um, why is there no national security advisor on the West Wing? He did not. <laughs> Absolutely true story. <laughs> Actually, now that I have you, because you said nobody forgets their first time in the Oval Office. You know, I'm working a bu- on a book now, The History of the White House Situation Room. Ooh. Did, did anybody, do you remember your first time in the White House Situation Room? Did anybody bring you into the Situation Room when you were there? Um, I only got brought in very... Not, not the first time. No, they show you the door, the outside door. It's by the mess. It's right by the mess. It's right by the mess, right? Yeah, right by the mess. Yeah. Um, they, yes. And I've never been in the residence, ever. Oh, no kidding. Nope. Never been up to the residence. Never been on Air Force One. Air Force One's pretty cool. Here's a great one. Another great Clinton story. This is, this is what a great, like, just his human skills or, you know, obviously we're not the first yeah. person people to talk about it, but we, uh, come back the next day to watch him get on Marine one. We're standing at the rope line. Marine one has been rotating for like an hour and a half. It's like, he's super late. He comes out, he's got his cup of coffee. He looks like he hasn't slept, comes down the rope line, sees us, comes over, talks to us. I've got my s- maybe barely year old son in my arms and he has his, frog that he carries everywhere that literally if he loses this frog we've had to cancel vacations i mean it's thank for clinton okay i am so glad we're having this talk because i thought this was the most amazing people skills ever so check it out my son 
gives him the frog. He's a year and a half. He doesn't give the frog. He doesn't let it out. Something compelled him to hand President Clinton the frog. By the way, there's a pic. I have a picture of it. Wow. And Clinton says, well, you know, frogs are very important to me. When I was a young man, he goes, I collect them. And my, my, because my, my father used to say to me, you never know how far a frog can go until you kick it. And he says, you can come see this in, in the Clinton library one day. And he took the frog and got, walked under the helicopter and flew away. That's a pretty great story. Is that your son you're working with him now? That is, that's the son who grew up to co-create our show on, on Netflix, which by the way, today just got its season two premiere. Oh, well, congrats and well-deserved. You guys are really, really good. Do you like it? Underwatch, yeah. It's a lot of fun. Oh, good. Good. So Clinton does collect frogs. I wonder if it's yeah, in. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, wonder, I'm sure his frog collection probably is in the presidential library. No, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I don't actually, I, I shouldn't even, I'm trying to rem- think about why I knew it. And something might have come up in all the Monica Lewinsky stuff well, where that was an issue, but I, I don't really actually remember. Listen, exactly. I, got, I know this is me interviewing you, but you're the only, there are very few people who that, that can appreciate this in a way that you will be able to. So I'm reading the first episode of the West Wing, not the pilot. We've shot the pilot. Mm-hmm. This is the first episode and, and it's the first time they, they put a presidential seal on, on every script that we ever did and oh. i'm reading it on a flight to montreal and you ever get the thing where you feel eyes on you you just feel you're being stared at and i look up and it's monica oh, that happens to you every single day that's true that's all true <laughs> but this was a different vibe and i look up it's monica Lewinsky. oh wow and she's looking at me and then looking at the presidential seal and looking at me and looking at the presidential seal and I'm like, oh, I can't even cope. I'm just going to go back to reading this script. So I try to forget about it. I get up, I go to the, the bathroom a couple hours into the flight. Somebody's in the bathroom. I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Bathroom door opens. It's Monica Lewinsky. We're now face to face. And you had not met before. Never met her. Never met her. And I just and said- what year is this? This is at the height of it. This is 98, the height. This is, um, this is 1999. Ooh, so it's after the trial, but it's, oh man. It's at the height. And, and I don't know her from Adam and I just say something like compelled me to say, listen, I I want you to know something. You should know something. We're doing a show. It's called the West Wing. It's going to be everywhere. You're going to hear everything about it. There's not, I just want you to know there's nothing, nothing about anything that would be concerning to you. You don't need, it's, it's, it's not that. That was very kind. And, and she was super sweet and she goes, well. You should know that I used to ditch class and go stand at the fence and watch you while you used to run at the Beverly Hills track. Wow. You can't that make our, you can't make life up. I have one for you. I'm going to, you want to see my impersonation of you? Sure. George, you've described Clinton in the following way, quote, a complicated man responding to the pressures and pleasures of public wives in public life that I found both awesome and appalling. What did you mean by that? Oh, that's from my book, right? Yeah. That, by the way, that's, that's my, my, that's how you would ask the question. Oh no, I'd be, I'd be, I, I, I'd be a little more direct than that. Oh no, no, actually that's fair. No, I gave you, I gave you the quote. 
And then I just directly said, what did you mean by that? Then you'd give me the chance to either hang or explain myself, one or the other, depending. And then uh, the question, I, before I even answered it. Yes. So do you have the follow-up already in your head? Ooh, you've asked that? Interesting. No, I don't. Which is okay. And I actually think that's great. I mean, I think you have to be ready for that. But, you know, the, the, the biggest thing I've learned in now 25 years of interviewing is the most important interviewing skill is listening. It has nothing. It, it's, it's not about the setup. It's, I mean, it's because you always have to have the setup, but it's about being ready for whatever comes next. That, that's that why I don't. That's why I, I, other than you saw me pull a note out, I don't do notes because I, You know, it's funny. I'm deaf in one ear, have been my whole life, and I think that I listen and is my my strength in everything I do because I have to really concentrate. Well, it's great for acting; it's essential as well. That's right. That's right. Because I mean, the thing that interviewers and I think actors uh, have to share is that notion of being right in that moment and being very present in that moment so you're ready to react in real time in a way that you know serves the audience different things and it is an interview certainly obviously means something different than what an actor would do to serve the audience but it's that same essential skill no you're you're right yeah you're right for sure what i, I know what i want to ask you about what was it like to moderate a presidential debate so much fun i mean it's uh, i and, it, and it's actually fun to prepare for them as well to get to when you when you because when you're preparing you're learning what every uh about the positions of every candidate you're learning the stress points and where the candidates want to have that debate and and my whole thing whenever i was doing that was to remember that this is their debate not yours so my 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 job i felt was always to try to to figure out what are the debates these candidates then want to have want to have and then Try to try to get that going. Sort of throw the no pun intended red meat out on the table and let them go after it. Well, the, the, or the the, the the meat they've already served. Yeah, just make you know it's it's time to eat now, guys. I don't want to say that you got luckier, but you were fortunate to have two people who know the rules and are really good at what they do. You had you had. Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, I, I think, is who you had in the in the Democratic debate. Is yeah, that right? That, that was particularly where what I got. I got my ass kicked after that debate. What did you do? Why? It was because and it's stuff. It's stuff actually. I think I think is defensible. Uh, in retrospect, with, with one, I learned a big lesson after me. That was the one where Charlie Gibson and I uh, were moderating back in uh, two thousand seven, two thousand eight. It would have been. It was in, probably in Pennsylvania, if I'm remembering this one correctly. And there were a whole bunch of controversial issues that they had been going at each other on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with Hillary, it was the whole thing about what she, you know, it's, all the stuff seems so frivolous in retrospect. I know. But, doesn't you know it it's all seems quaint today. <laughs> so quaint. Yes. Doesn't it? it seems it all and seems quaint. Was, why wouldn't he wear a, a flag pin, a patriotic? <laughs> Now it turned out that became a big issue. So I have no, I have, you know, I don't apologize at all for asking him about it during the debate. But I made it critical error. I should have started out. I should have remembered the lesson of James Carville back from 1992. 
our first question in that debate should have been about the economy, even though that's not what they had been talking mm. about. It is what the most important thing uh, to, 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 to viewers. And then you, it gives you permission to ask all those other questions that we ended up asking. But what happened, this is the early days of a kind of not even social media at the time, but it, the uh, Obama campaign just unleashed their army on the after that <laughs> debate. And in fact, I remember talking to David Axelrod, and he, it, was, it, was, it was like kind of a godfather moment. He said something along the lines of, and it's true, we're good friends, and I'm a great admirer of his, and I think he it admires the work I've done. But he was basically saying, it's not personal, it's business. <laughs> that. That's so great. Has there ever been a, like the first, you say first questions in a debate. I immediately go, go back to being in the auditorium at Pauley Pavilion for Bernard Shaw, first oh, question, Michael Dukakis about Kitty and rape and, and all that. And, and, you know, death, death penalty question. I've yeah. never seen, I've never been a part of anything like it. It was literally, you could feel it was over. You, it was over. And, and it, in the, the room. thing about that, and it, I, I love Michael Dukakis. He was the, it was the first presidential campaign I worked on. Yeah. A short Greek guy with limited sense of humor. You know, I kind of, <laughs> <laughs> kind of identify. But you that. have a great sense of humor for the record. So does he actually, but with the, the, the perception is the perception. Know. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, but this, you know, everybody's got a blind spot and that was his, I mean, that question is actually a layup. It's a layup. It's actually a layup. Yes. And you know, just, he answered in character and a lot of people said he was overscheduled and overtired and it was towards the end. I think it was only about 10 days before the election, actually, if I recall more or less. Yeah. And then he was just. Uh, just tired and missed, missed, the, literally missed the layup, yeah, as you say. Maybe that's it. I think that's possible. I, I actually think that campaign, I'll never forget. I, I went, I worked for, I first worked in that campaign. I was in New Hampshire um, at the beginning of the campaign. And then I went on as communications director during the Ohio primary. And then I went to Boston in May, I guess. And by June, when I, you know, when we were there that summer before the convention, we were 17 points up. And, you know, that campaign was lost. And it was, maybe it was, it was always going to get tighter than, than that. But I think that campaign was lost in August when uh, actually, instead of campaigning flat out, Dukakis did what he normally did in August and do this tour of Western Massachusetts. And it was, again, playing by the old rules, you kind of let the other team had their convention and, and the Bush campaign used that interim period to you know unleash Reagan on mental health, to do the Boston Harbor stuff, of course, to do Willie Horton, to do Pledge of Allegiance and the flag. And uh, we never recovered. Hey, listeners, ever have trouble getting someone on the phone when you have a question about your credit card with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person any time, day, or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 
1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Shopping for humans is hard. Shopping for your dog is easy. Thanks to Bark. Every month, we deliver toys and treats just for your pup. They deserve to be spoiled every month. At Bark, we send your dog a whole collection of toys and treats made just for them every single month. Whether it's our fun plush toys or our ultra-tough toys from Super Chewer, we give your dog exactly what they want. And for a limited time, we will double your first box for free. To get your free upgrade, go to BarkBox.com slash Rob. BarkBox is so convenient and delivers straight to your door and more importantly, right to your dog. I can't wait to try out BarkBox. My dogs need their toys, particularly the chewable toys. Sign up now at BarkBox.com slash Rob for an exclusive offer. This ad is now over. Let's get back to petting our dogs. If you are caught up in the Barbenheimer frenzy, if you love ranking the Mission Impossible films, if you are just an all-around movie fan, I have a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Amy Nicholson. I'm a film critic who writes for the New York Times, and I am also the co-host of Unspooled, the ultimate movie podcast. Each week, my co-host Paul Shear and I unspool famous films to see if they are truly all-time classics. From the original 1984 Karate Kid to Children of Men to more recent pictures to Dune, yes, to Citizen Kane, we cover it all. Listen to Unspooled wherever you get your podcasts. It's an amazing story, actually. You forget that he was 17 up. Um, I was very lucky to get to work with. I, I did a, a bus tour of 13 cities in Texas with uh, Senator Benson during that time. Oh, and, wow. And I... What a gentleman, huh? Oh, what a gentleman. And what that debate, you're no Jack Kennedy moment. Oh. It's, it's the, uh, it's what is it? It's the Willie Mays behind the back catch. It's the yes. Magic Johnson or baby hook. Calling it's, it's the called, calling I mean, Rundin. right? What you pick your, it's, it, it's Tiger Woods draining. It, that's it. That's the moment well, of it moments. Is, another, I mean, I, I think of what we learned from that as we prepared Clinton in 1992, but that is also an example of um, how, how, how much of a difference preparation can make. Mm. Uh, because Dan Quayle had been using that line. So the teams had seen it and it was all teed up. If Quayle well, went there my, again, my, Quayle served up a line he had served up before. And, and my favorite ready. part of it that people forget, and this is to your point, if you watch it again and the science, political science nerds, I'm sure know this, but if you watch, go YouTube it, forget the line and the delivery and the crushing. When Quayle says it, they actually cut to Benson. Yeah. And his eyes, literally, there's a shot of literally his eyes going, literally. I mean, this makes you think of something completely different, but on point. Have you seen the movie Air? I have. I hear it's great. I haven't seen it. Yes, I hear it's great. It's it's unbelievable. To, To that point, they show... Matt Damon's character um, replaying footage of a Michael Jordan moment when he's like a freshman. And what they, they keep replaying it and replaying it and replaying it again and again. And there's like a second left. It's, it's the NCAA shot. About, yeah. And they're about to it's the famous NCAA shot. Yep. And what they show by going back to it again and again and again 
is that moment before the shot. And right. Michael Jordan, freshman, what is 16, 17 years old, is as calm as you can possibly be in that moment. He wants the ball. No, not only wants the ball, but everybody on the team and the coach and Michael Jordan know not only does he want the ball, he should get the ball. Yeah. And he's completely, utterly zen calm. And that's the Benson space. In, in the, By the way, you should know this, just interesting in the West Wing. The first thing I did when I got the part of Sam Seaborn was send somebody out to wait. Wait at Barnes and Noble for your book to yeah, be delivered. Yeah, because it came out in March of 1999. It came out when you guys were starting to Yeah, no, no. The, I, I sent someone to stand and wait, and they got your book off the truck. Thank you. My kids' college fund. Thank you. Grateful for that. <laughs> what's the What's the new book? The new book is a history of the White House Situation Room. Oh, that's and right. You're telling me. Yes. Yeah, it's so much fun. Uh, to be working on. I've been working on it for about nine months. I got it uh, working with a great team. And it's surprisingly to us, and it's the reason I agreed to do it, because I have turned down uh, other opportunities to write books in the past because I didn't think it was a subject that, you know, where I could definitely add something new to it. But this one has never really been done before. And it was a, the white situation when it was created under John F. Kennedy. And we use it as an, as a, as an opportunity to examine uh, Christ, basically crisis management in the modern presidency. There's a chapter on each president from uh, Kennedy through Biden. We've done 100-something interviews with cabinet officials, secretaries of state, Henry Kissinger, Condoleezza Rice, Tony Lake, uh, every, just uh, Stephen Hadley, dozens of actual sit-room uh, personnel. And this is, they're the heroes of this book. And we've, we've un uncovered some new stuff and we're going to be able to show in, in, in some cases, the heroism of these people, but also their patriotism and um, professionalism. And it's a window on some exciting, dramatic, thrilling, scary moments in the presidency as well. It's been, it's been so much fun to work on. It's going to come out next year. Well, it sounds, I, I will send somebody to be waiting. Well, now I don't have to do it. I go to Amazon and get it. But what, Bring on. <laughs> what they did a big renovation outside the West Wing over the, like about four or five years ago, right? Like, in fact, they're, and they're renovating, well, they've been a, a couple. The situation room is almost always behind the time because nobody ever wants to do a full renovation. We have a couple of stories about that as well. But right now they're in the midst of renovating the sit situation room again. And I'm hoping to get, be able to get back in before the book comes out and talk about that as well. Because when you see the, the most famous photo that I can think of is, is the, uh, maybe it's the Bin Laden raid where, every, yeah. yeah, and it, 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 it the Situation Room is a complex. It's different from when I was there, it was really only a room and a half. It was renovated under George W. Bush and turned into about three or four rooms and Obama's in the offshoot room watching at that time that is right behind the situation room and now it's being renovated again but boy what an iconic photo huh? iconic photo and also it's like there are two things that drive me crazy in politics aesthetically i'm very shallow and, and i love things to look pretty one is the naugahyde wood paneling in that situation room photo it literally looks like chris farley's basement <laughs> and, and yeah, the, the, the jfk conference room actually at the time when i was there had mahogany 
it looked See? good, but it kind of looked like the Poconos. Um, yes, <laughs> yes, it's not a good look. Uh, and it's, it's a little bit up to date. It doesn't instill um, confidence. And then the other is at the UN, that whatever that kind of um, marble is behind the speaker makes it look like you're in a one of the lesser Saudi Arabian princes showers. Well, yeah, it, it, oh, it's that it's, it's, it's that brute modernism. It's so like 1962. It's like the, the, the old, it's like the old TWA terminal at JFK as well. It's, it's it definitely captures a moment in time. Yeah, it's not it, that could that could use a replay. Now, for the most important question, how's your golf game going? I was just thinking of golf when you brought up the Saudis because I'm pissed off about the. Oh, isn't PGA it unbelievable? AI. Isn't it unbelievable? It's un. How about if you're Tiger or any of these guys that turned down? Listen, nobody needs to have a pity party for any of these guys that got yeah, plenty I mean, of money. <laughs> but, but I mean, can you imagine that like you have an opportunity to, how about the young guys, like a Colin Morikawa, young guy, he's got his whole life ahead of him. They say, Hey, we're going to pay you, I don't know, 300, 400, 500 million to come over here. And the, the PGA people are like, well, you know, that would be against right. your morals. And, and then they turn around. It, it's un believable i don't know what the what the ramifications are going to be but it, there has to be some right Look, we'll see i don't know it seems like it's just going to move along but to answer your question my golf game sucks and but i'm, I'm coming uh, to, i'm coming to terms with them I'm, I'm kind of at peace with it I, I definitely have tried to cultivate the mindset now good mm -hmm. shot is a good shot a good hole is a good hole don't worry about the rest it's tough you're competitive like me you can't you can't get to where you got in the world you got without being competitive. You can't. So it's hard. It's hard to have that kind of stuff. I think. I'm turning around because my wife is trying to crash. This oh, have her come in. Have her crash. Have her crash. I'm crashing. Oh, how are you, darling? How are you? The great Allie Wentworth is joining us. Hi. Hi. While you, that, well, it's good that you're here because I want to talk about the Brooke Shields documentary, how everybody loved it, right? Hey. Well, what about, shouldn't you have married Brooke Shields? Well, you know, that's what, George, did you hear that I, I ran into Allie on the, on, we were, I, I, I heard, because I, you hinted at it when you were on the show talking about your show, but we didn't have time to get into it. And then Allie said she ran into and got the real story. I, I, without a doubt, Terry Shields was trying to do an arranged marriage. There's just not even a question about it. By the way, Brooke agrees. <laughs> she does. Yeah. See? Yeah. Yeah. No, but come on. She, is Brooke is like, well, well, we're the most, we were the most beautiful people. And I went. Boy, you and Rob have no problem bringing that up, do you? <laughs> I never use that phrase. Now, come on. But no, well, maybe it's true. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> now, but, but don't you think the combination, the two sets of eyebrows, that it would have been a problem? It would have been a centipede. It would have literally been our eyebrows and eyes. Well, here's what happens. When those genetics go together, it goes the other way. Like, yes. I'm, I'm very concerned about the, the, the genetic combination of me and Brooke Shields. That well, I, uh, but then again, if George and Brooke Shields it could have been a full hairball depending on where everything laid. I mean, but can you imagine if they would have gotten together, it was pre-internet. Yes. But it would have broken the internet, even though the internet didn't exist. Yes. It would have, it would have, you would have had paparazzi chasing you 24 seven. There's only one fatal flaw in Terry's mechanizations. What was that? That I was a great, notably, crazy 20 year old single man and brooke was a professional virgin oh you weren't a virgin back then yeah i wasn't really um 
I don't. I think Jerry would have been fine with. <laughs> my daughter wants to crash the podcast. Yeah, come in. Too. Come. I want the whole family. I'm just Elliot Rod. Hi. Hi. How are you? you? Oh my God, I'm... you're you are so cute. Hello. You look exactly like George. Wearing a shirt. Yeah. Yay! I love it. All right, go back to your podcast. All right. I'm, I think we're going to try to come out to uh the, to the Long Island and 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 uh, we'll I'll look you up for sure. I think maybe August sometime. Are you going to stay with Gwyneth and Brad? Yeah. Oh, that'd be amazing. Wait, isn't this a great conversation? <laughs> I, I, no, you can <laughs> edit this all out. I don't know. <laughs> As my political advisor, George, I think we, I want to be able to run things by you. Should I say this? Should I, should I words, word shop this, wordsmith this? Go for it. Um, I love your wife. She's great. You did well by yourself. I'll tell you that. You definitely chose well. Um, what else do I want to do? Quick, most important decision you can make, right? It's the only, it's, it's the lifesaver. Yeah. It's the no lifesaver. Um, I'm rated. Well, we got, it's going to be a great election cycle. Do you get excited? I mean, you must, because now it gets fun. I mean, it gets every day. There's yeah, something I mean, new or, is the, or are you over it? No, neither. But fun is not the word I use anymore because mm. um, it's it, it, too much is at stake. So it's, I, I mean. Okay. Fair enough. I'm 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 too scared to be to say it's fun. I think this is a critical. I mean, we always say that, but I do think this one uh, really is. I think our, what we've gone through in the last few years has just been a transformation of what it of, of I think our democracy that we can't allow to go to the next level. I mean, so far the institutions have held, but um, you know I'm worried about it, and I I uh, am am kind of shocked at the at the things that we're dealing with in our political system every single day. I mean, the idea to me that, you know, we were talking, we started our, the conversation talking about this, that, but that you have a, a former president who was impeached twice, uh, led it, you know, sparked what appeared to be an insurrection against its own government because he refused to acknowledge that he lost an election has since lost a defamation case and been over over sexual assault and is on the verge probably of being indicted for taking classified documents and obstructing justice not to mention what happens on january 6th and he's the leading candidate in the republican party that's i i still can't wrap my head around and those are those people the trump supporters are out there and and they they buy products and they vote and they do. And so it's not like you can ignore it. No, you can't. You have to, you have to cover it. I think it's important to cover in context and make sure that you're always giving all the facts and you're not amplifying. Do you think if somebody comes in with a kinder, gentler, and listen, we, we, we've all known Trump forever. I mean, we, we, we knew him in New York. We knew him in the eighties. So he's not a new brand for us. And he wasn't a new brand. He, he is who he is. Do you think if somebody comes in with the folk, cause Trump was the first person to ever focus on immigration in a real way. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody, nobody, nobody. Now everybody talks about it. And so do you think, well, I don't, I don't fully agree with that. There were a lot, I mean, George W. Bush tried to get bipartisan immigration reform back in the early two thousands. It's never, never. That's true. He did. You're right. I mean, and I think actually Obama tried as well. Uh, to get it done. I mean, it is, I think you're right that no one before Trump was willing to 
address it in the way he addressed it with you know this idea of the wall that we paid for by Mexico, which wasn't built and wasn't paid for by Mexico, and uh, this idea of demonizing to a degree unlike any other candidate had done before, demonizing immigrants who are coming to this country. Now that has, I think, he did has shifted the Republican Party in his direction on that and many other issues. Um, but it wasn't the first person to, I think, talk about immigration. I think it was the first person to talk about it in the way that he talked about it. And there's an argument to be made that the way he talked about it, it, it was surely that rhetoric was not good, but it's a way that takes it out of the egghead beltway. Oh, absolutely. It Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, and look, you know, that's what you and James did so well with, with, with Clinton. It's put, the, these are the issues, but the, they, they need to be dealt with in a way that, that people has meaning in people's actual lives. That it's not some philosophical, esoteric, beltway, jargon-filled thing. And that's, I think, you know, like it or, yeah. or hate it, that's what Trump is very, very good at. And, you know, he trans- he he remade the, he, he, he took advantage of the fact that the Republican Party was broken in some ways, remade it in his own image, and now they're trying to deal with those consequences. Do you think that they're, what do you make of DeSantis Disney? I, we have to talk about that, and then we'll go. Um, well, I'm obviously I'm a Disney we, employee. We all so. work for, yeah, we both work. <laughs> look, we both work for Disney. We both, we both work for Disney. I, I think, you know, listen, I think I don't want to tangle with Bob Iger. I love Bob Iger. I think Bob Iger is super too, smart. I agree with what he's been doing. I agree the way he's playing uh, this issue right now. I think Ron DeSantis took it too far. If he ever does an interview, I'm happy to ask him about it. But right? it, it, it doesn't seem like that's going to happen anytime soon. No, it doesn't. It's going to be, it's going to be a, I, I, you're right. I shouldn't use the word fun. There's too much at stake. What's the word I, that we should use? You're, energizing. You, energizing. And at the same That's time. what it'll be going forward. Well, I know I'll be seeing you. I love my w- once or twice a year running in to see you and Robin and the gang. Um, right. With some of the time I play golf and you can see just how bad I am. And I want to come in and co-host again. I had more fun that week we did that. That was I, I had a absolute, it will be hard for me to do the early mornings. You're my hero. I don't know how you, what time do you go? Tell everybody what time you have to wake up every morning. Bed by eight. I go to bed around eight, eight thirty, and I get up around three, three thirty. You get, you get up around three, three thirty. Yeah. But I go to bed early. Wow. You're my hero. Thank you for doing this. This is great. Uh, This is fun. Thank you. Well, all I can think of is how cool it would have been to be 1992, young George Stephanopoulos. He's got that hedgehog head hair going and he's bringing it back burgers to the Clinton campaign and Little Rock and you're sitting around talking smack. <laughs> oh man, that would have been great. What a great guy. What a great talk. Um, smart man. And, and good dude. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And um, there's more to come as there usually is next week on Literally. Hello, you've reached Literally and our lowdown line where you can get the lowdown on all things about me, Rob Lowe. 323-570-4551. So have at it. Here's the beep. Hey, Rob, what's up, man? It's David Himes from Clearwater, Florida. So I just finished binge-watching Unstable, and I was wondering, 
what of those things that occurred in the show that you were doing that were crazy that you actually have done or a variation of what you've done? Like I could totally see you helping the landscaper one day at your home and incorporating that into the show. And uh follow up to that, you recently discussed how you dressed up like Sasquatch to scare your children on a camping trip. So if there's any way that you could write that into a season two or season three episode, that would be hilarious. All right, buddy. Thank you, man. Enjoy everything you do. Thank you. I'm glad you're loving Unstable. Um, we've, we have so much fun doing it. Uh, in season two, I think you're right. I think the Sasquatch story, Ellis Dragon would, see, this is the thing I love about playing Ellis Dragon, is the, the character can do literally anything you can imagine, and it will feel realistic to that character. And those, coming up with a character like that is very, very hard um, to do. And when you do, it's like Christmas morning for an actor because like, literally nothing is out of character. Um, and, you know, Ellis is like me blown up to the most absurd degree. Um, like you said, I actually did wear a Sasquatch suit to scare my kids on a camping trip. You know, not everybody would do that. Ellis Dragon would. So it takes real elements of my, my worldview and, and, and my enthusiasm for life and, and, and wanting to try new things and puts, puts a really big giant comedy top spin on it. And it doesn't help that my own son co-created it and um, is standing next to me in almost every scene. So thank you for watching. Um, and uh, don't forget to watch um, season two. Thanks. You've been listening to Literally with Rob Lowe, produced by me, Nick Liao, with help from associate producer Sarah Begar, researched by Alyssa Grawl. The podcast is executive produced by Rob Lowe for Low Profile, Adam Sachs, Jeff Ross and myself at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson at Stitcher. Booking by Deirdre Dodd, music by Devin Bryant. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Literally with Rob Lowe. This has been a Team Coco production. <laughs>